FX Medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Rhiannon Hardingham. Rhiannon is a lead member of the naturopathic team at Melbourne's Fertile Ground Health Group. Committed to the successful integration of natural and conventional medicine, Rhiannon works closely with her patients' medical specialists to help them to achieve optimal fertility and best results from assisted reproductive treatments. Her success with patient outcomes is a reflection of her diligence and keen sense of curiosity to find long-awaited answers in complex cases, earning her the respect of many IVF specialists in Melbourne. As a testament to this collaborative approach, Rhiannon was invited to speak at the 2019 Fertility Society of Australia conference on the topic of naturopathic IVF support. Rhiannon is also regularly invited to present to medical professionals and naturopaths alike regarding the benefits of collaborative management for IVF and obstetric patients. Welcome to FX Medicine, Rhiannon. How are you? Very well, Andrew. Thank you. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Good. Now, today we're going to be talking about preconception healthcare. So, what exactly is preconception care? How far back does it extend and who does it involve? It's a, it's a really interesting question, actually, and I was just pondering that yesterday in, uh, in clinic. Routinely, of course, we talk about the three months prior to conception of being that real window of preconception healthcare because the uh, sperm and the egg take uh, three months to um, mature, develop. Mm-hmm. And so obviously health in that time can significantly impact the health of the egg and, egg and the sperm, in particular the um, uh, uh, chromosomal and mitochondrial um, normalcy and function within uh, that gamut. But, of course, really importantly, the health of the individual at the start of that three-month window is absolutely integral. So if I have a couple come in to see me and uh, they are uh, young and healthy and of good weight and already eat well and don't smoke and don't uh, drink excessively, don't have uh, environmental exposures, then we're pretty good to go within um, three months uh, as a rule. But for those patients, and this, of course, um, in my practice at least, is actually the majority, those patients who come in who are of advanced age and who have metabolic issues or um, complex uh, comorbidities, it it really can take uh, a lot longer to help them to reach optimal 
fertility. So really preconception care, you could say, is uh, your entire life. Um, yeah. But in particular, your health um, in the three months leading up to, but when you look at the literature and clinically, we know this very clearly, there's a lot of evidence around your health in the 12 months prior to conception yeah. and even uh, um, the three years prior to conception influencing oh. both your chance of conception and your pregnancy um, health outcomes. Right, three years. Mm. Mm, mm. There's a um, uh, there's an interesting uh, 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 graph in one of the research articles that I uh, often reference that uh, that has um, the the optimal time at which changes would be made for fertility outcomes and uh, weight management starts at three years out according uh, to the research. Okay, so mm. you know, like often we concentrate on the female here. What about the male? Mm. What about somatic, spermatogenesis and the issues there? Let's say with a tradie partner who might be a painter or somebody who works in the the car industry. You know, the mm. mechanics industry mm. with the you know toxins and heavy metals and things like that. Yeah, and uh, and of course, similarly, um, white collar workers who who drink or smoke, or a, a lot of them we see, of course, are significant, significantly overweight, and it it is absolutely the case that excuse me, male factor is um, uh, relevant in around fifty percent of cases. It's considered that male factor alone is responsible for about a third of infertility cases and that combined male and female are um, relevant in, in about uh, an, another 20 or 30%. So it's about half. Uh, and, of course, um, spermatogenesis is that, that, that uh, roughly three-month window. Um, I think it's really important to highlight, and I say this all the time to my patients because a lot of men don't accept this, that uh, or don't acknowledge this maybe mm. until they are explained it's explained to them um, in some detail. But uh, second to female age, male factor infertility is the most prominent cause of infertility in Australia. So female age being the first, but secondly, if the female is younger, the most likely scenario if a couple is not conceiving is actually that it's him. Okay, mm. so you've just... <laughs> You know, sort of discussed one factor in the reluctant male patient, and that is the, uh -huh. the you know, the threat of of being part of it. You know, like what sort of strategies do you use, and, and can you help us with with overcoming uh -huh. the the issues when presenting the evidence to males and getting them on board with saying, "Hey, this is you know, you're part of this this union." You know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um it's an amazingly. Uh, a uh, stubbornly challenging area of practice. Uh, I do a lot of mentoring uh, for practitioners around fertility and it is something that I find is consistently, uh, it's, a, it's consistently um, a challenge for, for a lot of pa uh, practitioners that I see. And I think that is a unique aspect to working in fertility medicine when it comes to men and that's that they're there, they're often there under duress. Whereas if you're working with them in other areas, uh, whilst they may have been encouraged or even pushed by their partner to turn up, they wouldn't come unless they uh, unless partially they they wanted to or they felt they had felt they had to. But a lot of the guys that we see are there with 
their arms crossed, really stubbornly annoyed that they were even asked <laughs> to come along in the first place. Um, and, um, and, you know, and it is sadly just not, um, not rare for us to see men who have refused to do semen analysis testing, um, or, or take any responsibility at all. And very often, of course, um, when we do finally get them to do those tests, they turn out to be part of the problem. Gotcha. Now, is, is preconception care also important for those considering, um, IVF at all? Yeah, it it is, and um, uh, probably even uh, reasonable to argue that it's more important for those attempting IVF. When you when you really look into uh, IVF medicine, um, you see that it is uh, far from a perfect science. Um, we, the, this number is is um, debatable and debated, but there are some estimates in Australia that only one third of um, individuals or couples seeking IVF walk away with the baby. So the success rate is um, uh, not overly impressive, unfortunately. And largely the biggest challenge that most couples find or women doing it on their own find with IVF is the capacity to produce viable embryos in the first place. And there's very, very little, despite years and years of research, very little that conventional medicine can offer for improving gamut quality Mm -hmm. because, of course, we understand it's just a reflection of health and cellular health and um, really it's only those factors that are often largely within the individual's control that can influence that outcome. So it's it's really actually particularly beneficial for those couples who have not had success with IVF. Mm-hmm. Are these people the canaries of a toxic world? Oh, definitely. Definitely easy to see it that way. And I certainly do, especially in particular the guys, when you look at the literature around the – and it's very, very – um, confirmed now scientifically in the days that um, uh, our uh, uh, foremother, I think you can call her, Francesca Nature, this field um, wrote her books. It was still the, scientifically these these concepts were almost theories, but now it's so utterly confirmed in the literature. She was well be ahead of her time, so utterly confirmed in the literature that it is discussed in mainstream scientific journals and they actually say that male fertility in particular is the canary in the coal mine for human health in relation to uh, environmental exposures. Yeah, it's really Mm. interesting. I mean, you can go back right back to the book Silent Spring. Um, yes. when, when it was first sort of hallmark, but that was an overt toxicity. Now that it's just this yeah. chronic smouldering, oh, there's, you know, antidepressants in the drinking water, but don't worry about that. You yeah. know, it's really interesting how it's, there's not a lot of attention being paid, even though these yeah. are measurable now, you know? Yeah, and I always say this to patients and, and practitioners that I'm speaking to alike. When you go to the conferences and you see the scientists speak about this, the toxicologists uh, talk about the research that they've done in relation to exposures and fertility and cancer, they are screaming about the importance of this. You know, they are really uh, you know, sounding a significant alarm 
But, of course, um, politically, it's just not getting through. And until it's a political priority, and I don't know about you, but I can't imagine Scott Morrison talking about this anytime soon, until it's a political priority, it just doesn't seem like uh, we're going to get very far from a um, from a human environmental human health perspective. So, unfortunately, it just falls back on the individual and, of course, that's our role is educating the individual about what it is that they can do to help to um, prevent their own exposures as much as is possible. So with regards to these scientists, though, they're at the mm. medical conference. Are the yes. medicos listening? Yes, yep, and you often see some interesting interactions after their, after their, um, their conversations. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago I went to the uh, Andrology Conference Around the time, I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a, a couple of years ago, there was a really significant paper released that got a lot of ma- media attention about the halving of sperm counts in human males over, yep. over 40 years. Yep. Um, and the andrologists uh, and the uh, the toxicologists that, that work on in this field are there presenting what really it looks like indisputable science and many doctors are nodding in agreement and then there is the odd one who will get up and go, oh, but you're talking about China. This isn't relevant to our population. Um, And, yeah, the scientists are just like, I just don't know what to do with you. (laughs) So we have Australian data? We, we do have uh, some Australian data, in, certainly in that research paper in particular, the populations considered for the halving of sperm counts were um, developed nations. In developing nations, it was far less significant, and in that was included research from Australia and New Zealand, as well as Europe and Northern America. I've got to say, yeah. though, of course, if you don't call something by its proper name, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, So, like, I'm reminded by things that the EPA did, let's say, for asbestos testing. And if if you're going to test, you know, the mouth of a river um, because there's an asbestos leak and it's been washed into the river, but if you Mm. conveniently test three months later, there's nothing Mm -hmm. there. There's no problem. Yeah. You know, so so talk about politics. How loud do we have to shout? What movement's being made to Mm. awaken medicos? To this yeah. issue. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? And I, you know, I've uh, read a lot and obviously, and, you know, um, worked with and discussed this a lot with Nicole Bilderman around a, a policy perspective, you know, and I don't, I, I don't see us getting anywhere there, as I just said, but from, from a, um, a medico perspective, it really is down to the individual, isn't it? And I think um, uh, what I can say from my experience with the specialists that we work with, there is a really significant um, cohort of uh, relatively younger and, dare I say, predominantly female doctors in this field who are absolutely open-minded and um, it's almost a ridiculous thing to call it open-minded, isn't it? Because it is just very fact-based, but uh, open to the science and also uh, aware of um, their own health personally. Now, I think that really has an influence on how everybody practices as a clinician, no matter what field you're in. If you are not particularly conscientious of your health, you're not really likely to um, uh, bring that into your experience with patients in an everyday way. 
so there certainly are many doctors who are not turning a blind eye to it. And, of course, clinically they have very little time to uh, discuss these factors with patients. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm probably biased in saying this, but I think it's fair to say that you can judge a an excellent doctor by their willingness to refer to somebody who can help patients who need that support right. through that time, and we're lucky enough to work with with some of them. Let's go a little bit into preconception care, what it includes. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned a few obvious things before: weight, alcohol. There's stress. Mm-hmm. How accepting are your medical colleagues with regards to supplements and how judicial, how respectful mm-hmm. do you have to be with regards to what um, pharmacological medicines they're on? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really good question and, and of course, it does. It comes up a lot in the uh, work that I do with practitioners around supporting patients through IVF. Um, uh, and, and I think the first thing to say is that there is... Uh, reasonably good evidence around the benefit of uh, supplemental intervention for uh, egg and sperm quality in particular. Sperm's very, very clear. Uh, And that is uh, even the case considering the fact that it's fair to say that we're missing some uh, investment in high-quality research, uh, as, of course, is often the The case. circumstance with our our, uh, our medicines. Um, but there is good evidence um, in particular around, uh, uh, of course, our um, you know folates and B vitamins and all of those things that affect methylation. Uh, it's really clear uh, that uh, zinc, for example, is an essential nutrient for egg maturation. If you starve poor little rats, of zinc and then put them through a stem cycle, they won't achieve any um, mature eggs for collection. And uh, there's reasonably good evidence around antioxidants such as coenzyme Q10 and melatonin and resveratrol uh, for egg quality. And for men in particular, we know that vitamin C is a primary antioxidant in seminal fluid and that uh, DHA in particular omega-3s, but DHA in particular is a really key component of healthy sperm. So there is uh, absolutely enough evidence to convince that, um, convince us and our patients and the doctors that it is uh, uh, effective um, and, and definitely worthwhile. You know, there's there's a lot of controversy in this area, though, because I remember a couple mm-hmm. of articles talking about, you know, herbal medicines may hinder IVF treatment. Mm-hmm. So how how aware do we have to be with, uh, I guess, what's useful and safe versus yeah. what has, you know, only a tiny bit of evidence or even shaky evidence with yeah. regards to its safety? Yeah, absolutely. And that is, uh, herbal medicine in particular is it's far more um, potentially uh, complicating for IVF cycles than nutritional medicine can be. So it is really important and we certainly suggest that practitioners who are not familiar with uh, uh, safe approaches to using herbal medicine with IVF patients refrain from doing so. However, I absolutely 
believe that uh, for some patient groups and in particular those patient groups who have a really poor prognosis, so women with what we call premature ovarian insufficiency, which maybe in the bad old days just would have been called premature menopause or um, genuinely menopausal um, women uh, who have really poor ovarian response on IVF stimulation and overall have a really poor prognosis with IVF. There is good research to show us that uh, herbal medicine can improve their outcomes and uh, clinically we have uh, a lot of experience with um, working with those patients. I have one doctor I work with in Melbourne refers um, uh, countless uh, premature ovarian patients because she knows very clearly that it is uh, really difficult to manage these patients from a medical perspective. Um, but, you know, I really think that's, that, that, that I have uh, quite a few patients that wouldn't have their babies if it wasn't for the benefit of herbal medicine preparing them for um, IVF. And so I think it's really sad to uh, dismiss that entirely, but you absolutely have to know what you're doing when it's indicated and and most importantly, when it isn't isn't safe. Yeah, um, um, and I was mm. going to ask also, when do you use herbal medicines? Do you tend mm. to have like you know a period where they're not undergoing active treatment, where you yeah. might say address you know issues like um, uh, you know smouldering stress? Do I say that word? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, ongoing stressful issues that might be hindering their IVF purely yeah. on its own. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and and that is uh, you know prior prior to any uh, IVF cycle, most patients won't be taking any medication. Occasionally, they might be taking a DHEA or using a testosterone cream, and occasionally they'll be on the pill. But overwhelmingly, they won't be on any hormonal uh, medication between cycles. And of course, you're free then to do everything that you want to do from a nervous system and adrenal perspective. Mm. Uh, and um, and uh, often often you are safe to continue non-hormonal herbs during the stem cycle, but we, of course, always uh, only ever do that with full uh, acknowledgement and support of the specialist um, and, um, and uh, you know, only with, you know, clear consent from the patient, but most importantly, only when we are 100% sure that it's safe. Some of the doctors that I work with literally refer for herbal medicine, so they will refer and say, can you please use herbs with this patient? And they want them on herbs during the stem cycle, but it is very specific when that is um, required and and indicated. So obviously they've got the knowledge. This doctor... Or these doctors yeah. that refer, they, they're actually quite comfortable with yeah. these specific herbal medicines. So they've got to have some knowledge about them. Well, they don't. It's not so much that uh, that they know about the, the herbs in general, but they know uh, a little bit about the research, and then and they know um, uh, from experience of working with fertile ground for because we've we've been in Melbourne for for nineteen years now, uh, and um, under the. Um, significant enthusiasm of our director, Charmaine Dennis, we uh, have a really, really strong collaborative bent. So we do a lot of letter writing. We do a lot of presentations to doctors. We have a lot of meetings with specialists. We really 
we, I guess it's fair to say we're well regarded and we've shared thousands of patients with um, with the clinics in Melbourne. Right. So it's familiarity. You know, yeah. they, they know that if we're recommending it, it is safe and they're comfortable with our expertise in the field um, that we wouldn't be putting their patients uh, at risk. Okay. Um, now, mm. I know this has got to be um, done under a, a a situation of expertise, I get it, but are mm-hmm. there any hallmark herbs that you might commonly use mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, are there any caveats that you might put in there as well? Mm, for sure. There is um, uh, that, going back to that premature ovarian insufficiency scenario, uh, there is uh, some uh, research that shows us that uh, Vitex is um, really beneficial for these patients. So premature ovarian insufficiency from a pathology perspective is marked by low anti-malarian hormone, the old um, egg timer test, as as it's sometimes called, Um, but low anti-malarian hormone and often high uh, FSH associated with low estradiol. And we know from the literature that Vitex can help to improve that that anti-malarian hormone, reduce the FSH, which uh, helps to prepare a woman for IVF and improve her ovarian estrogen synthesis. So, so Vitex is probably uh, in a lot of ways the most useful herb for some patients and then on the flip side, also the one that would be most likely to cause ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome in right. a patient if it was used incorrectly. Um, so, yeah, both the most useful and the most controversial um, and the one that a lot of doctors directly refer for and request um, and also the one that a lot of doctors will say, I don't care what you use, but don't use Vitex. Right. So right. It's, yeah, it's, wow. It's the, the best known and really it just comes back to like everything that we do, just uh, clinical insights and knowing who it's indicated for, who it's safe for and who it is definitely um, contraindicated for. Yeah. Okay. So mm. I'm going to ask the next question and we are, yeah. non, we are non-branded here, but sometimes mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. to stick to a, a researched... Um, yes. extract. So yes. can I ask, do you do you prefer fluid extracts? Is there a dosage consideration here? Because I understand Vitex can have a flip flipping effect if you use low yes. versus high dose. Absolutely, that's correct. And so the research was, was done on a liquid form, uh, but the important thing to understand about it is that it used a dose equivalent to 180 milligrams of um, dried fruit extract. You can either get that in a liquid form, which I'm sorry, I've forgotten off the top of my head, it's either 20 or 40 drops, and it's the same as the ZE440 extract. Any other herbs of use that are that have, you know safe, maybe in different conditions? Yeah, we, uh, I, I definitely use a lot of uh, the steroidal saponin-containing herbs. Uh, in particular, there are uh, indications of uh, poor uh, fertility prognosis and particularly poor IVF outcomes for women with low DHEAS and low androgens in general. And so we have um, uh, good research and clinically a lot of experience to know that tribulus in particular is really uh, beneficial in influencing uh, endogenous levels of these hormones in a positive way and um, and other steroidal saponin-containing herbs as well will, will do that job. 
Can I ask about the phytoestrogenic herbs yeah. that we use? Yeah. Can, yeah. You know, what a bone of contention. Now, yeah. my understanding <laughs> is that phytoestrogens are not estrogen and that in the normal amounts that is intaken, even in herbal mm. medicines, they actually have mm -hmm. a reducing effect, not an additive effect. Mm -hmm. Am I correct or am I wrong? Well, I, I think that really looking at it as a modulating effect gotcha. is, uh, is more accurate in that for those with low endogenous estradiol, they may benefit. And, and a good example of this clinically, and you can see it quite easily with the use of herbs like black cohosh and uh, hops, uh, is that for women who experience a dramatic estrogen drop just before they get their period, they'll often experience quite crippling migraines. And black cohosh and hops can really help because of their phytoestrogen content alongside phytoestrogens in soy, good whole soy foods can really help to uh, improve the, uh, the management of uh, symptoms for this patient group. Um, we also know there's good research to show that black cohosh can absolutely improve pregnancy rates for women using uh, Clomid for ovulation induction, so women with PCOS and uh, irregular or anovulatory cycles um, uh, are given Clomid, which helps to uh, increase their estrogen levels, but black cohosh alongside that increases pregnancy rates. So it's a it's a good estrogen modulator, um, and I think probably also worth saying for excessive estrogen conditions such as endometriosis, uh, used in the right way, patients can also see benefit from that as well. Right, but of course, mm. I guess the the cat one of the caveats might be, you know, there's no little easy way to use a, a phytoestrogen to quote-unquote block-high estrogen if you've got polycystic mm -hmm. ovarian syndrome. You really have to be looking at the weight and all of the other issues. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And, of course, uh, even for women with high estrogen with PCOS, uh, it's it's really uh, prone to, to major fluctuations. Gotcha. And, of course, the underlying uh, mechanism underneath these hormone fluctuations is, is predominantly metabolic. Can I circle back to a few of the supplements that you mentioned? Any yeah. dosage mm -hmm. considerations there, like CoQ10? I, I have a dose of 100 milligrams. Do you go higher or is that around the dose that you use? I definitely go higher than that. Right, right. <laughs> so we have, we have some uh, – and we were using it for years before this because, of course, if we waited for research to come in, then uh, the benefits our patients got would be well delayed. Yes. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was 2018, a, um, a research paper finally came out. We'd all been using CoQ10 for ages, but a research paper finally came out showing – that the dose of 600 milligrams uh, help to improve uh, egg quality ovarian response. So it does help to improve egg numbers, egg numbers for women with poor um, with poor numbers in the past, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, pregnancy rates. So that 600 milligram dose of CoQ10 is actually what we're using in the uh, three months preceding and during the stem cycle. Gotcha. And sorry to harp on about this, but oh, okay. um, is this the CoQ10 ubiquinone 
or the newer yeah. ubiquinol, which has it, less research. Yeah. Yes. So the the interestingly, the research was uh, conducted on a very poor quality um, uh, commercial brand coenzyme Q10 that absolutely was not ubiquinol. So we know that even in that uh, less bioavailable form, it has a uh, clinically significant benefit. Uh, what we, um, of course, assume from other research around plasma concentrations yes. with ubiquinol is that the benefits would be greater. However, it's extraordinarily expensive. So yeah. I will tend to use uh, a combination in the individual, uh, ensuring that they're on the 600 milligram dose, but uh, but using the best version of ubiquinone that we have found um, available to practitioners, which, you know, importantly from our perspective is oil-based rather than powder yep. um, for, for bioavailability and then alongside that a little bit of uh, ubiquinol. But that is unfortunately often heavily indicated by the depth of the patient's pocket. Yes. Um, it's a really expensive supplement to take 600 milligrams of every day and I'm not sure it's necessary. Well, the lion's share of research is on the ubiquinone. Exactly, exactly. You know, so any other... Supplements that we can consider to be safe, and I, I'm I'm very mindful of putting caveats in there, and yeah. I, I guess I'm also very respectful that you guys have got extensive experience mm. with this, mm. and yeah. it's not something to be treaded to be trodden lightly to go ah just use a little bit of this. I don't think that's appropriate, yeah. but yeah. I, you know I guess there's also patients out there that may not be able to make it to Melbourne, so yes. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Well, I can say there's many good practitioners around the country that uh, that also have experience in this. Uh, but uh, but in general, I think it's fair to uh, say that some of the basics are really integral, ensuring that the patient is on a quality multivitamin that uh, you're using your, your um, you're using your clinic skills to ensure that their methylation is working properly. If cellular methylation is not effective, then of course uh, that really uh, rapid and integral DNA replication, especially for sperm, but also for egg maturation, isn't, uh, isn't contributing to optimal gamut quality in the individual. So, you know, just really getting your basics right with your B vitamins, uh, uh, both for Sperm, as I mentioned before, but also for eggs, essential fatty acids are integral. So both the uh, quality supplement form and also ensuring that from a dietary perspective, their ratio of fat is as optimal as it possibly can be. Um, vitamin C, as I said, in relation to sperm, um, primary antioxidant seminal fluid, but also a key antioxidant in follicular fluid around maturing eggs, um, uh, beneficial for everybody except for those, uh, especially guys with, with uh, iron overload or hemochromatosis. Um, and, uh, and of course, zinc, both for men and women, uh, really essential uh, aspect of both sperm and equality and also hormonal uh, expression. You know, you said something really interesting there, good old zinc. And mm -hmm. we've mentioned 
uh, methylation before. Um, uh-huh. I, I noticed that a lot of the the enzymes which convert our sex hormones um, mm-hmm. have common pathways, zinc, B6 and magnesium, yeah. common substrates. Um, yeah. Can it be often as simple as just adding in these very simple, cheap supplements? Or, yes. or is it that you guys just deal with the really complex cases? In some cases, it really is just that simple, especially if you're getting a young patient and in relation to zinc, a young patient with a uh, uh, an inherited tendency to very poor um, uh, zinc management, as in they excrete their zinc uh, excessively, or a, a patient with a low zinc diet. So I'll see a lot of young women who are uh, predominantly vegan with poor egg quality and it is as basic as her nutrition is not supporting egg maturation and some zinc and essential fatty acids uh, and some B12 will make a remarkable difference and in three months she is successfully pregnant after having been unsuccessful in trying for, for a year or so. So sometimes it really is absolutely that that simple. Mm. And, you know, our basic clinical skills can't be uh, overlooked from that perspective. And also, of course, often these are the things that haven't been assessed for the individual medically. Aha, uh-huh, of course. Mm. Now, now I've got to ask, you and your colleagues at Fertile Ground have recently published a book, right? Yes, indeed, we have. Can you take us through this, please? Because I, I think this is going to be really interesting for so many mm-hmm. practitioners out there. It was a real passion project for Charmaine and also uh, uh, my colleague Gina Fox. Uh, they, you know, we worked on this book for a good six or seven years. Uh, and to be honest, if it was up to me, it probably would have got dropped by the wayside uh, with, after two years. But if it wasn't for their um, drive and passion, we we wouldn't have gotten here. Um, uh, but it is a, a preconception care book. So, of course, um, Francesca Nature's excellent resource mm-hmm. um, has, has served us all uh, so well and is still very relevant, but we thought that it was time for a bit of a uh, clinical and scientific update on that because, as I said, there's so much research that's come out. We have 200 um, literature references uh, in in the book itself, so it's very, very evidence-based as well as um, uh, clinically relevant and informative and practical. Um, but because of that evidence base, we've had a really positive response and uptake from um, from the specialists that we work with. So we have um, a few of them selling them in their own clinics. Uh, we have them hosting book launches for us, um, which is really, really great. Uh, we, we've run a couple of book launches ourselves and, and different specialists from Melbourne have have um, uh, attended just in the audience and also have um, have come to um, present on invitation. Um, but, yeah, it's been really well received and I guess more importantly than all of that, we, we released it uh, in uh, September, October last year uh-huh. and most importantly, it's been really well received by patients, a number of patients that 
read that book. And for me, clinically, it takes that arduous aspect of, of working in this field out of clinic. Like, I don't want to have to go through <laughs> plastics in everyone's kitchens, can, plastic lining of cans, washing your hands after you touch, touch receipts, your personal care products. I don't want to go through that all day, every day in my job. It's, it's exhausting and repetitive. But now I just get to give them this book, so read this. And <laughs> Page then, 16, 23, 20. Exactly, exactly. And then come back and we'll talk about what is relevant for you. And patients have been amazing. They come back with sticky notes all through the book. They come back with questions. They're like, oh, it said this about this might be an indication of thyroid issues. Um, What do you think about that with me? I'm really interested to hear what you guys said about uh, sun exposure, you know, et cetera. They're really uh, enthusiastic and embracing it and and it's, I think, um, fair to say it's kind of changing people's behaviour and hopefully lives if it's not an exaggeration to say that. Well, it isn't, in fact. Mm. (laughs) You Mm. you guys have done exceptional work in Mm. bringing not just the, you know, helping not just the patient's lives but obviously creating families. Um, Yes. I have to ask the devil's advocate question here, Rhiannon, and and that is Mm -hmm. what do you say to those people who say that complementary care has no place in IVF? I would just say just read the journal of fertility and sterility. It's not a crazy left-wing idea, you know, a left-field idea. It is, it's actually conventional from a science perspective uh, and, um, and the evidence is absolutely in now without, without question. So it's, it's become much, much, much easier to field those questions and dispute that these days. In defence of doctors, if I may, I, I think that uh, a lot of them are, are, I think that they're generally aware of this and whether or not they embrace it in their clinic or they just are aware that the science is in is different. And then on the flip side, if I go back and say back to male patients, there is often a real resistance amongst them to believe that this isn't um, a, a crazy idea that their partners come up with. Right. Um, but now, because of the evidence, it is just so easy to go, I'm sorry, buddy, you're just, you're just <laughs> not right about that and you're, you're just going to have to listen to me and uh, the world scientists on this. Rhiannon, you often present on the subject of collaborative management for fertility patients. Mm-hmm. Why is this so important in this patient group? Yeah, it's really uh, it's it's particularly uh, particularly key. It's fair to say, I think, for this patient group because of those things that we discussed, the potential contraindications and interactions, and also because of the high potential benefit that these patients experience. Um, from complementary care for for their IVF uh, outcomes, but also because we know from um, some research that was conducted about eight years ago now in in Melbourne that uh, about two-thirds to three-quarters of uh, individuals accessing IVF in Australia also access complementary care. So patients are choosing to see us. I think even in... uh, general practice uh, these days, uh, particularly naturopaths and uh, traditional, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners are very likely to see patients at accessing some sort of assisted reproductive treatments. 
and it's really important for our recognition as a profession and um, uh, our professional our professional recognition as a profession that we are communicating this with our patient specialists so that they uh, understand that we are competent and uh, and uh, and coherent, I guess, in in this field, and that we are of genuine value. Um, good good way to emphasise a good opportunity to emphasise your usefulness to a doctor is when you're you're working with a patient with uh, metabolic issues or weight issues. Uh, they are often the bane of the doctor's life because they really don't have any answers for improving this patient's outcomes even though it's clear that the weight is an issue Uh, and so uh, when you have success with those patients doctors are really really grateful Uh, and then um, you'll find if you're not careful that you'll start receiving a lot of referrals um, for uh, patients who need to lose 20 kilos Um, for better or for worse you 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 get what what you're good at yeah (laughs) Well, um, but but yeah, just just to help to improve our profiles and really importantly for patient confidence because they're a really uh, really really um, anxious group. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Well, Rhiannon Hardingham, I've got to say the testimony of your genuine value and your group at uh, at um, Fertile Ground is because you have indeed helped thousands of mm. couples um, yeah. to to have families. And so working, as you say, in a collaborative environment, thankfully in a collaborative environment, you know, these patients are getting the pinnacle of both medical and complementary care. And you're doing brilliant work in in helping people, not just with creating families, but actually, uh, you know, helping their general health along the way. So thank you for joining us on FX Medicine. You've done exceptional work. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.